Okay, good morning. It's summer in New England. Who does not have air conditioning? Okay, we need to be praying for certain people. Arayla and I are from the part of the country where it's hot, and uh, we can't imagine not having air conditioning. You know, you'd think we would be the ones to be used to it, but we can't imagine not having it. So, uh, well, good morning. As Bernard said, I'm Jeff, one of the pastors. It's really a privilege to come up and share with you this morning and talk about God's Word and what He has for us. And as folks are coming in, we're kind of settling in. Let me just um, let me do let me do this. Let me do something a little different. Here we go. That'll get us in trouble. Um, I feel like this morning, as I was praying coming in, that someone has a something on your chest. Uh, I mean, I felt the sharp pain in my chest, and I, I don't know if you've had a sharp pain. It could be a physical thing. It could be just an emotional thing you've been struggling with, uh, something that's been a burden, um, or it could be a physical thing, and um, I feel like uh, you know it, you've had it, you've experienced it, and maybe um, you haven't even shared it with your spouse or somebody that you should have along the way. Um, so if that's you, um, if you're bold enough to raise your hand, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, okay. So yeah, we have a few people raising their hand right now, so the Holy Spirit's already moving, and He's already telling us stuff and thinking, so would you just join me in prayer? I'd like to pray, for, let's pray for these folks, and let's pray for some relief. Heavenly Father, I, I just reach my, extend my hand out, and if, if everyone here, if you saw them raise a hand, just extend a hand towards those folks. We just extend a hand right now, and I ask you to bring healing. I don't know if it's on a physical realm. It's an emotional realm. It's on the spiritual realm, but there's a sharp pain that's been in the chest. It's been a burden. It's been something that's uh, it's worrisome. And I ask right now, Holy Father, that in the name of Jesus, you bring healing and relief and peace and comfort. I don't think you'd have brought this to my mind if you wouldn't wanted us to stop this morning and pray. And so here we are. And I ask you to bring healing now, Lord Jesus. Amen. I just want to be sensitive of that because I never know what the Lord's doing, okay? Uh, <laughs> um, in spite of what I might want to say, uh, I want to be sensitive of what the Holy Spirit's doing and what He's saying. So let's have that spirit and attitude this morning, right? Um, are you with me? Oh, okay. All right. So let me, let me gather everybody in. We're all in the same room. Let's all get in the same place. And let's see what God's going to speak to us and how He might interact and move among us today and what He's going to do. Uh, after I finish uh, the sermon, we'll have some time of worship. Uh, we'll fold into that, and then we'll have some time of prayer and see where we're at. Um, so, uh, Heavenly Father, I just come to before you in prayer right now as we've already sensed one burden, and you're relieving it, and you're releasing it. We just gather together. Uh, we want to give you our focus right now for the next bit and ask you to speak to us and move among us and, and continue just to minister in that way. Um, speak to me, Father, through your word. Uh, give us ears to hear what you want to say. And uh, use, use us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Bernadette said, a number of us went to Syracuse, New York this week. Um, for some people, it's like, why did you go to Syracuse? Well, um, you do it on purpose. And we did it on purpose to, 
uh, to go to the Eastern Regional uh, Vineyard Church Conference of pastors and leaders of different churches. I think there's some 20 of us that went. I think that was a number. It was a, a good group. And uh, there's 16 different regions how the Vineyard Church are. And I thought I'd talk about it this morning. Uh, God pressed on me. If you just attend the Vineyard Church here in Hopkinton, is this the only vineyard? Raise your hand if this is the only vineyard church you've ever been in. Raise your hand. If you, okay, look around the room. Everybody's got their hands raised. See, a majority of us, this is the only vineyard church you've ever been in. Okay? The only vineyard place you've ever been in. And I thought, well, you might think we're just kind of a blip. Um, and what are we and who are we? Let me speak to a moment about it and connect you with something bigger. Um, the Vineyard Movement, Vineyard Movement of Churches, Association of Churches, actually is all across the U.S., and we've divided the country into like 16 different regions. In the eastern region, there's 10 states that make that up, and so pastors and leaders from these 10 states in the eastern part of the U.S. got together this, this past week from Pennsylvania, Delaware, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, and Massachusetts, and we gather together and um, encourage one another, lift one another up, and uh, sought God's presence together about what he's doing. But from a perspective of size, like, oh, okay, that's quite a, quite a number. There's about 60-plus churches in this region, okay? 60-plus churches in our region. Um, but there's a larger trajectory that's going on and a larger impact. The Vineyard Church movement started in 1974. I want to ask where any of you were in 1974. Some of you don't even remember 1974 uh, that far back started as a single church that spawned a, a new church plant the very next year and became the association of vineyard churches uh, within a year and started growing and multiplying the name itself came from uh, a couple of verses in scripture named early on i preached about it a few weeks ago on the july 3rd july 4th weekend uh, when we talked about john 15 1 through 5 He's, Jesus said, I'm the grapevine, remember? And my father is the gardener, the master gardener. Yes, I'm the vine, he says, and you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so the idea of a vineyard and what was there, and it tied back to another verse in Isaiah 27, and it says, in that day, sing about the fruitful vineyard, I, the Lord, will watch over it, watering it carefully. Day and night I will watch over it so no one can harm it. So the Vineyard Church movement, or church movement started up with this idea of, God, would you watch over us? We're, we're just your branches, and we want to be fruitful for you and do things for you and, and move forward. And so that's how the movement started. And now 42 years later, there are 620 Vineyard Churches across the United States. Did you have a clue? Um, and some 2,400, 2,400 vineyard churches around the world in 95 different countries. Yeah. More than 300,000 people, they'll say, are calling the vineyard church their church home now around the world. 300,000. And we're still growing. We're still advancing. We're still moving the kingdom of God. In the U.S. alone, there's a goal that by 2000, let me see, I got their date right, 2013, I, uh, 23, I'm sorry, 2013 already passed, duh. 2023, it started in 2013, within 10 years of that date, 
to plant 750 new churches in the U.S. More than double. And within the Spanish-speaking world of the United States, um, the church is called La Viña, uh, vineyard in Spanish, La Viña. There's a goal to plant 200 churches, La Viña, that speak Spanish, Spanish-speaking churches in the U.S. alone uh, by the, in the same time frame. Uh, so the movement's growing. There's a lot going on. You're part of something really big. Um, but it's not all about the Vineyard Church. There are some distinctives about it, and I've had people con- constantly ask me, well, what is different about the Vineyard Church, and what is it? And there's certain distinctives, and I thought it'd be good just to take a moment to refresh. Are you, are you with me on that? Just kind of refresh what some of them are. One of them is about the main and the plain. You'll hear kind of some things like, we're all about the main and the plain. And it was the idea that, um, and, and the early founder of, uh, of the movement, as he was moving and pastoring the church, said, I'm reading all what Jesus did in the scripture, and I want to do that. You know, he said, we do even more and greater things than he did, and I want to do that. I want to be the plain. So it's the idea of going back to the scriptures and what Jesus did and just trying to do what Jesus did. Uh, it's a theology based on the already and not yet. The idea of being that the kingdom of God, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is coming. It's near. And other times Jesus would say the kingdom of God is here right now. And we experience that and see it as, as the Holy Spirit spoke to me and spoke to us this morning. And there's people with some needs. He's moving. The kingdom of God's here. And we know it. And we interact with it. And we experience it. But yet, not everything that we experience and all the struggles we go through and everything that happened is quite resolved yet, is it? Who's got everything resolved in their life right now? Yeah, okay. No, none of us, right? And so there, it's a coming. It's coming. We're looking forward and longing to Jesus coming. So that's kind of a theology of the already, but not yet. It's the idea where our kind of our central prayer liturgy seems to be just come, Holy Spirit. Would you just come? God's brought his bringing his kingdom in the world. He's announcing it through the through his own son, Jesus. And when Jesus was crucified, dead and buried and rose from the dead, he said, I won't leave you alone. I'm going to send the spirit of God, not just to be around in the place, but to be inside of you in me in each one of us. And we say, come, Holy Spirit. It's the idea where everybody gets to play. Some guy like me can actually do something like this. And everybody gets a chance to interact and play. It's not about some kind of pastoral staff or some kind of clergy. But it seems to me when Jesus said, go make disciples, and the disciples go make more disciples, it involved everybody doing it not just those who went to some seminary or had some kind of special training. We're all involved. We're all in. That's the idea. It's a concept that's not new just because of current politics or political correctness, but it's being said through the Vineyard Movement for the last 40-plus years. You're welcome to come exactly as you are. Just be prepared to don't stay as you are because God wants to transform you and conform you to His image. Not to my image, but to his. It's being naturally supernatural. Have you heard that expression before in our church? Being naturally supernatural. That is, I feel like God's saying something. I don't know if it's sure or not, but I'm just going to say it. Holy Spirit, would you come and interact with us and being willing to pray and reach out and being that kind of person. Being worshipers of God and rescuers of people. Worshipers of God and rescuers of people. 
Here's one that might seem bizarre. We're known as a distinctive to be a history maker. A history maker? Yeah, God's speaking through us, ordinary people, to do extraordinary things and to impact and change our world. Have you thought of yourself as a history maker and making a difference in your world? That faith is spelled R-I-S-K, risk. That to be that history maker, you need to get outside of your comfort zone sometimes in an adventurous faith and be able to share and do things because God's asking you to do it and for no other reason. It's about equipping the saints, equipping us with God's word and with prayer and one another. And it's about being a church that plants churches that plants churches that keeps wanting to extend the kingdom of God because we're not satisfied with where we're at. Now, by no means, don't get me wrong here because I've talked about this for a few minutes, by no means is the Vineyard Church perfect. It's pretty obvious because you have imperfect people in it. I want to ask you to raise your hand. Oh, people are raising their hand already. Okay, we're all, we all fall in it. And so it's going, to be, it's going to be kind of messy sometimes. By no means is the Vineyard Church perfect. Or the only way to do church. If it came across like this is the way you have to do it, no. Not at all. But it's a pathway. I think we're a pathway. Where we try to be culturally relevant and be a part of the universal church and connect with others. Like in our own community, around Easter and Good Friday, we have this ecumenical service and we just pour into that with the other eight, nine local Christian churches in our community. Because we all have something in common. That's Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us. We just want to advance his kingdom together in that way. So don't get me wrong, the vineyard won't be telling you how to do church and how it's supposed to be done and that this is the only way to do it because we're all broken people whom God's rescued. I'm one of them. I can't imagine where I'd be right now if God hadn't intervened in my life. And not just in one event. I mean in a number of events. How many of you had multiple events where God's intervened in your life and he saved you? Okay, look around the room, guys. People, God just keeps doing it. He keeps rescuing us. He keeps saving us and keeps shaping us. And we're all in the process together. Now, especially in the Western world, one I'm familiar with, none of us like it when folks tell us what we're to believe and how to exercise our beliefs. It's never more true than in uh, a political season. You don't tell me what I'm going to believe. And um, Facebook friends are starting to part company right now. And, and nobody likes to tell us how to do our finances. Nobody likes to tell us what to believe anyway. And nobody likes to tell us how to do church. Yes or no? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's part of how we are. We, we just don't like it. Don't tell me how to do it. I know, I'm, I know what I'm doing here. I'm kind of standing on my own. So we, we don't tend to like that. But somewhere in the midst of it all, God reveals himself to us right where we are. That's usually how it intervenes. It's not God shapes us up and changes us and we go someplace and we kind of become conformed to something and then God will speak to us. That might be an old style church way to approach people. Uh, She or he can come into the church as soon as they clean up their act, get the right clothes on, bathe, (laughs) or 
conform to certain things or do certain things, and then we'll see, have them invited in. It seems to be different than that. We, we find stories of Jesus, and he would interact with prostitutes and lepers and, and blind and, and the poor and the beggars. Have you ever been around places where that exists prolifically, and I have around this world? The majority of us tend to walk around that. And I don't mean just the occasional person on a street corner here. I mean where people, that's the only substance they're going to have that week is being able to collect something from somebody along the way. And Jesus seemed to interact with them broadly and openly. He did things differently. I'm reminded of a story that kind of emphasizes um, our dislike for being told who we are and what we should be and, and how to do life. This is meant to put a smile on your face, so just relax a little bit. I'm afraid I'm going to tell you something blow you away. But there, there's a shepherd, and he was herding his large flock in a field and moving them across the road, and suddenly... A brand new BMW advanced out of a dust cloud on the road towards him. The driver, a young man in an expensive suit, dress shoes and fancy sunglasses, leans out the window and asks the shepherd, if I tell you exactly how many sheep you have in your flock, would you give me one? The shepherd looked at the man looked back across his peaceful flock that was standing there. He said, all right, I'll do it. So the man parks his car, whips out a high-end laptop, connects it to his satellite phone, enters GPS coordinates, surfs to a NASA web page where he calls up imaging satellite that scans the area and generates a high, ultra-high resolution photo. The young man sends the image then to a machine learning center in San Francisco, and within seconds, he receives an email that the image has been analyzed and finally prints out a full-color 150-page report on a high-tech miniaturized printer in his car and hands it to the shepherd and says, you have exactly 1,586 sheep. Shepherd drops his hands. That's absolutely right. I guess you can take one. And he watches amused, though, as the young man picks up one of the animals and stuffs it in the trunk of his car. And then the shepherd says this to the young man. Now, if I can tell you exactly what your profession is, would you give it back? The young man thinks about it for a second. Got his own pride about him, what he is. Okay, why not? You're a consultant, says the shepherd. Wow, that, you're right. <laughs> How'd you know that? Well, you showed up here even though nobody called you. You want to get paid for an answer I already knew to a question I never asked. And you don't know anything about my business. <laughs> now, please return my dog. And I feel that way sometimes about when I'm talking about church. You know? 
I really don't know everything, and none of us do. Uh, we're all in this together seeking God and hungering for God and what He'll show us and reveal to us and what He might show you might be something completely different than what He shows me. And for me to dictate my religion or your religion has to be just the way I experience it, not only is hard for us, but we can't really grasp it. It has to be what we personally each want to experience. I've probably left the wrong story in your mind for the rest of this time, but I so like that. And in that context, what we hold on to, even in beliefs, sometimes is very fragile. And have you ever thought about almost everything that we interact with and hold on to in this life is fragile? Our possessions, our interactions, our relationships and things in this earth. And just a step further than that, it seems to be the more precious they are to us, actually the more fragile they really are. Your home, furniture, autos, dishes. <laughs> we were involved in breaking one last night. Fell out of the cabinet. <laughs> Appliances, clothing, electronics, TV, Cell phones do not bounce. They break. Books. Even our food and medications have expiration dates on them. They're all fragile. But what about your job? Your title? A team? Your possessions? Your finances? Your investments? Our Earth's water supplies? The heat that we need? fire is consumed and gone the supplies that need it cooling interesting last night Alan was trying to connect with somebody um, out of one of our church groups in Connecticut and they didn't have any electricity and I found out that was um, Carly I think you told Rayleigh like we don't have any electricity in the house and then somebody uh, you know our uh, my sister-in-law in El Paso said oh well, was, all this family plans we all set down the electricity went out and it's like all at the same time around the country, you know, it seems to be very fragile. Your opportunities that you have seem to be fragile. Time itself that you have to use for is like a delicate thing. And the older we get, we know we, how we balance and use our time it becomes very important. How about relationships? Has anybody ever found that relationships are fragile? If you're living in some kind of world that you think they're stable or strong, you know, they're fragile. And the closer you hold them, the closer they end to you, the more important how you should give back into them. Families and marriages, and your children, and friendships. Other things are fragile. Your character. Trust. Ego. A secret. Everybody found that a secret is very fragile? Handled with care or gets dropped and spilt and everybody sees it? your opinions, your feelings. Everything is fragile, fragile, fragile. Have you noticed? And deep down, there's some kind of yearning that we all have. 
We all feel the question sometimes down in our soul that ask, and we all desire to have a lasting impact, though. In spite of everything being fragile, we, we somehow inside of us want to make an impact. Our lives would have purpose. That we're here on this earth not just to exist, but there's something that we'd have purpose for. But sometimes we get lost. We want to have meaning. We want to leave a legacy. And sometimes we give up on it. We all want to make memories. And a lot of things we do when you have a party and you invite people over to celebrate a birthday is to make a little memory. Uh, Aurelie and Alan and I walked, did a walk the other day and we said, oh, we're going to you know, walk down here towards one of the shops. And we walked about two miles from the house. And when we had left, Aurelie said, is it going to rain? Alan, Siri, is it going to rain? No. Siri said, no. Siri said it wasn't going to rain. And two days ago, we got torrentially downpoured on for about 15, 20 minutes walking here in Hopkinton. I mean, we were wet, and we just laughed. We started singing together. We were the most bizarre three walking through Hopkinton. I'm surprised someone didn't call the police on us. But we made a memory. And we like to make memories, don't we? We like that because things and time and what we do seems to be kind of fragile. However, because most everything we do experience is fragile and we see it and we're constantly doing this, it creates a tension within our lives. Have you ever felt that tension? Hello? And life seems to point more towards decay and finality than it does to success and permanence. It seems to point more towards decline and deterioration rather than it does towards achievements and durability. What we see and experience seems to point more towards some inevitability and failure than to a realization and longevity. Our moments and experiences of beauty, success, and happiness and peace all seem to eventually feel like they're overshadowed by something we broke and give way to life's end. And left only with these thoughts, I've left you with some really good thoughts right now, haven't I? Really encouraged you. It seems to be there would be no hope. And everything's depressing and leading many of folks to a pathway, well, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Solomon talked about people that were like that. For tomorrow you die. And so two extremes emerge. We get those who, because of this, they just set it aside and become all about their job or all about certain things and achievements and accolades or education or things or busyness, and they just stay so busy like they can just set that other kind of fragile piece of the world that's around them aside. Or to the other extreme, they get so lost in what's fragile and broken that they themselves become lost in their own self-indulgences and depression and addictions and are lost. Now I want to lay out for you that if this is true and this is universally true, is this universally true for everybody in this room? Yeah? Have I, have, do you see where I'm going with this? If that's true... The scripture must speak to it in some way or another. That fragile piece of who we are, that we want to have meaning, but yet things are fragile. We want to have something good, but it seems to be kind of deteriorating and slipping away from us. And the scriptures speak to us. They acknowledge this universal thought. But they point us to see that there's a different lens with which we can look at things. It's the lens of scripture. 
it's in a spiritual eyeglasses. Because with the scriptures, with God's word, it can enlighten and point us to a point of view that's much more deeper, much more profound. It's about truth of our experiences, of what we see and how we interact in life. And when we review, when we view then our surroundings with these lens, our relationships, our opportunities, our challenges, our jobs, our resources, our time, experiences from God's point of view, we see the world in a whole different light. And it changes us. There's a particular text of scripture that I want to point to. If you have a Bible or an app on one of your devices, would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1? 1 Peter chapter 1. We're just going to look at a couple of verses. Yeah, I know. Everybody's looking to the screen. I fooled you because I didn't put anything up on the screen today. Um, there are some Bibles around, um, front and back. There's something about holding it and looking at it. And I look at mine electronically, so there's nothing wrong with that. But just see God's Word close into you for a minute. Hold it in your hand if you can. And if you don't have a copy, then listen to what these verses say. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 and, and on. Peter says this, For you've been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. As the Scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower. A flower in the field, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. A couple of points I want to make. Life is not everything is bad. Life has a real purpose when it's seen from God's perspective. These, thing, these verses, for me, seem to point out a universal truth that we naturally observe and I was speaking about for the first several minutes. Experience that we all live out to some level or another. And we can, uh, we can av avoid it and hide it and become busy, or we can get lost and immersed in self-addictions and misery, but we all face it to some way or level. But how are we going to face it? And there's things around us in life that are good. I want to point that out first in, this ver in these verses. And though everything is in a decline, the grass is going to wither. I mean, I got home from just a few days in Syracuse, and my grass went from somewhat green to brown. Anybody else have brown grass? It seemed to be dying. I mean, what happened? There's no water. I don't have a sprinkler system. I have a heavenly sprinkler system, and it's been shut down for a few, a few days, except when we walked home the other night. And it seemed to avoid my grass, and it just fell on us. Peter knew as he wrote these verses in the Holy Spirit and he quoted them from an earlier Old Testament revelation that grass is good, that grasses are diverse and widespread. When he talks about, we can just look at these verses from the perspective of that grass is withering or, yeah, and that flowers fade, but I think he's taking it from a whole different perspective first and you need to, I want you to envelop this with me just for a minute. Grass is the universal plant that most botanists and most scientists and the world forever would say is probably the most needed and necessary plant that's on our earth. 
that grass is good and needed. It's found and widely distributed across our whole planet, our entire planet, except for parts of Antarctica and a little bit of central Greenland. We have grain crops like barley and wheat and maize or corn and oats. We have long stem crops that are used for different things like bamboo. Who knew bamboo was a grass? I didn't. Yeah. I'm a microbiologist, I'm not a botanist, okay? And uh, sugarcane. I've dealt a lot with Bermuda grass and fescue and St. Augustine and zoysia and living around the country and having to cut it and mow it. And there's all kinds of ornamental grasses that have purposes that only a botanist can even pronounce. But they're used for food. They're good. They're needed. They're used for food universally. Wheat, rice, corn, sugar cane, barley, all used, all essential elements. Consumed by more humans, by more to live off of than any other thing on the planet. God even designed the grass. It's a bizarre thing that it, that it grows from the, from, from the top. To, that You can nibble it all the way down, a grazing animal, all the way down to the roots, and it'll still grow back up. You know? My bonsai trees don't work that way. They're used for building materials, to build buildings, to, to build things, huts and places where people live, and, and different materials from furniture and, and things. It's paper used for paper our lawns our sports arenas where we watch World Cup soccer played right Rocco it's key to preventing erosion grass is good that's what I'm trying to make a point here it's good it's necessary it's needed it's part of what flowers are good flowers are beautiful They've been well recognized for, for, for the ages as a place to bring beauty and stimulate the environment the flower itself is a bloom. It's the reproductive part of the plant. It's necessary and it's there and it has usefulness and it's needed and we look to it. And I think Peter just took that all in assumption, but eventually it does wither. The grass does. Eventually it does fade. And though as useful and as beautiful and as necessary and needed as a bee, there's a place where it does move away from us. And I think he's saying exactly what, how I started this sermon. That in all that's there, it is really fragile. How can I be gone for three days and come back and my grass is brown? I, maybe I've already shared this story, and forgive me, I have, but you remember we lived in, at one point I lived in South Carolina, and I took a job in Minnesota. We moved up there, and I've always taken care of my own lawn. I thought I was really good at it, and we're... Uh, we have a nice lawn. Yes, grass grows for about three months in Minnesota when it's not snow on the ground. And so we, I, I took it, taken care of the lawn. I had cut the grass. I had fertilized it. I had some leftover fertilizer for, that I brought with me to South Carolina. And we went away for vacation. I have a sprinkler system that I set up where, where the grass would just stay this lush. It was like the first lawn I'd ever had that really started good. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And we drove up when I came home. You look down the street, house after house, and there was all these lush green lawns in our neighborhood, except for one that looked like wheat ready to be cut. That was completely brown. It was my lawn. Because Jeff didn't know that the fertilizer that he used for the type of grass that existed in South Carolina actually 
burns the grass completely that grows in Minnesota, and I killed it. It was gone. Withered. And I, didn't mean, I don't mean it just kind of put it dormant. I mean, I, I took samples to this guy, and he said, no, it's dead all the way to the roots. You, you effectively killed the grass all the way and had to completely replace it. Of course, Ray and I are too cheap and didn't have the money, so we ended up doing it all ourselves, and that's another story, and she'll tell you how bad that went. <laughs> but eventually, these things fade and go away. And I think Peter's telling us that. But is there something that's more permanent, a perspective that's different from that? And life's not meant to be fatalistic because, okay, well, it's all good, but then it's all bad. It's all going to die. That we're supposed to be some kind of fatalistic kind of a look at it. There's an eternal focus, an eternal basis. And that's how we look at God, how we look at things through God's lens and God's scripture. From the very beginning of human thought and the mainstream worldview right up until this century, and especially so in Jesus' time when, these, when the words of the Scripture were penned, there was a sense and a belief that was universal that there was some kind of supernatural power that created and sustained all things. Whether it was believing in the God of the Israelites or some others, and our world and humanity would move around and they would worship and, and think like there's some kind of supernatural force. The Greeks themselves believed in some kind of supernatural force and it was prolific at what got communicated within the Roman Empire of this universal force that moves through it. And when John wrote his gospel account, he starts it off using and playing off this thought playing off of this idea of some kind of universal thought, of some kind of supernatural force, it was always being tagged to this God or to this thing, this element, to the sun, to the moon, and these kinds of things. And the gospel writer John, one of Jesus' own disciples, he said this in John chapter 1. It's very how he opens the book, and you guys are fam it's, you're familiar if you've heard these verses. He says, In the beginning was the Word was the Logos. He uses this idea of, in the beginning was this all-encompassing supernatural force that went out. Was the Word, he calls it. And he uses it, it's translated that way in our, in our English Bibles. And the Word already existed. This supernatural force already existed. It was with God, and it was God. In the beginning, the Word already existed. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed, this word did, was, is a person, and he existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. And he's building this thought of this supernatural force exists, and it exists in a person that is God himself. Not some kind of spiritual element or force or power or the force or some kind of thing that Hollywood and others play off of. And the Word gave life to everything. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness can never extinguish it. And then he goes on in verse 9. He says, you know, the one who's the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created. The world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and they even rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human. 
and made his home among us. If you ever memorized one thing out of scripture, just memorize that. And the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the father's one and only son. And John goes on, identifies this. This is Jesus Christ, God's own son. He is that supernatural force that came in the world. And he's the one that gives life and sustains it. He gives meaning. And when you see the grass raising up and it's productive and doing things to the point where it even withers and decays, when you see the flower bloom up and becomes that reproductive thing that creates those plants to grow and it brings beauty and stimulates things in the world, but eventually fades, the one who created it, sustains it, and brings it back to life is the Logos, is the God himself, is Jesus. And he came. And so when Peter writes these scripture verses to us, back in 1 Peter 1, and he said, you've been born again, He wasn't referring to a Jesus had the same argument or same kind of dialogue with that one Pharisee. It's not a physical birth, guys. It's all spiritual. It's in the spiritual realm. And not to a life that will quickly end. We can quit thinking about ourselves as, okay, it's just temporary. I mean, I turned 60 in just a handful of days. Kind of a big deal. I, I thought it was kind of a big deal. But it's not the end. I can look very fatalistic and say, I'm on kind of phasing out, right? Or you can say, I'm just getting started, guys. And, and my existence, and I'm not just about what here, but I mean the impact I can have eternally. And that I'll live eternally. So you can live fatalistically and say, well, I'm on the back end now. I can see the, well, the grass is gone in some places. Um, and it's definitely faded in some others. But that's not what my reality is anymore. My reality is in Jesus Christ, who's the Logos, who's the supernatural force of God, who's God himself. He came and he lived within me. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, what endures forever? As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. What are we clinging on to? Are we clinging on to all these things, job titles, positions, opportunities, our time that we have, our investments, our home, our, our things, our other relationships, and we should build those up and nourish them and take care of them and deal with them. They're all very fragile. But you know what is eternal and endures is God's word. I know we don't do amen a lot, but that'd be okay. Is God's word. Thank you, Peter. I knew you were what it just you hanging and you want to get it out. Is God's word. Now, where are you spending your time? Oh, now he's going to step on toes. How much of your time is spent with the eternal things or with all the other things? The grass that's withering and the flowers that fade. We have to deal with them. But do they all consume you to the point where you don't spend any time with what's really important? That is eternal, I should say. And even though most everything we observe and experience then is declining and fading, there's hope. A hope that we can cling to. It's a hope that's eternal. God's word. The gospel message that was preached to you that was shared to you is what we cling to. And when you share your faith, 
I tell you what, if there's people in your office or in your environment or in your neighborhoods or in your schools or in your area influence and you don't have you have an opportunity and you don't tell them about why you think differently than the rest of the world because you have a relationship with the creator God himself and revealing himself through Jesus, you may be the only person in that influ- that can have that kind of influence on them because you can connect with them in that way. You need to do that. He called us all to participate, all to play. All to be involved and engaged with it. It's not waiting for somebody else. Oh, I'll bring them to church. The moment may pass by. It's using that right there. Jesus was the master of using things, and and look how Peter took this up, of using common things like grass and flowers and could preach the gospel message. You probably have it in whatever you do at work. I stood before thousands of people when I took over a couple of different businesses. I stood before thousands of people that brought them all in these big auditoriums, need to meet the new big boss. It sounds really impressive, but please don't get lost in it. And you know what I told them? King Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. So all the problems that we're facing right now that, that these managements brought me in here to fix, I know there's an answer to them. We're going to fix them. Because I believe in an all-powerful God, and He can help us do that, and we're going to figure this out. I had HR just squealing in the back and and all kinds of stuff. But I decided, you know what? This is my moment. And I didn't want to push it in anybody's throats. And you didn't hear me all day long beating them with the Bible and stuff like that. But, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. There's things we can fix and do. We can do this. We can do this together. And I had more people come back to me because of that discussion, that little talk, in a positive way. Those were negative. We'll talk about that differently. But there were people who came back and said, I really, I'm really glad you said what you did. And got motivated and encouraged. And I want to encourage you and lift you up today. Maybe you spent a little bit too much time with the fading grass. Or withering grass and the fading flowers. You're called to take care of those things. But you're also ca- called to nourish your souls and to nourish the souls of others around you in God's eternal word. And that's exactly what's called out in these verses. Would you please cling to Jesus? Would you please just cling to Jesus? He's your good shepherd. If you wander away from the flock, he will come get you. He will come get you and bring you back. If you feel like you're hopeless and you're at the edge of the flock or all the grass has been eaten down and there's just nothing for you to hold on to and sustain anymore and just whatever you will hold on to, those beauties, those experiences, those jobs, those relationships are broken and fragile, the good shepherd will be there. The master gardener will take care of you. He wants you to be fruitful and he'll be there for you. Would you cling to Jesus? Would you turn to Him and cling to Him? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I want those words and those thoughts to start sinking deep and deep and deep within you. And as they come up, would you just close your eyes and let me read this passage one more time? Let me read this passage one more time. And then Brian and the team are going to lead us in a period of time of worship. So are you struggling 
seeing life from God's perspective and through his lens. Close your eyes with me and listen to God's word. You've been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you.